0: And before I begin, I want to thank uh, the four men who spoke while I was gone. Um, I've not heard the sermons yet. I look forward to that. And I I really appreciate the work that they did. And if you stick around for the business meeting afterwards, we will discuss the possibility of having them speak again on a regular basis. Um, But at this point, I wanted to thank them for speaking. In the past two years or so, we've examined what the Bible has to say about various issues and topics. The practices of community, Christian hospitality, a theology of food, a Christian view of fear, ambition, and more. And then the last thing that we looked at before I left was uh, the parables of Jesus and what Jesus intended by them. Today, I'd like to begin a new series by asking a question that hopefully will lead to other questions. And that is, how is the Christian faith to be passed on to another generation? If you have it handy, you may notice in the prayer of confession, at the end of it, it speaks of praising your greatness from generation to generation. But how does this work? How do we pass on our faith in God to the next generation? Some of us might be called, well, some of us might be called second-generation Christians. That is, our parents were Christians and tried to raise us up accordingly. That we are Christians today, um, or have remained so, um, may be the result of different factors in our lives. Some may have turned away from the faith for a period of time, and God has graciously brought them back. Some might say that they are Christians in spite of the fact of their Christian upbringing, but God has graciously sustained them. Some may see themselves as part of a continuum, that God spared them some of the difficulties that other Christians have faced in either turning away or seeking to hang on to their faith in the midst of darkness. Some of you, in fact, may be first-generation Christians. You may be the first in your family to become a Christian. But I think whatever the case may be, the question remains, how are we to pass on the faith to the next generation? With all the babies in our midst, uh, this is not a rhetorical question. With the struggles the church faces in this present generation, this is not an abstract question. And with the seemingly growing hostility to the Christian faith, this is indeed an important question. To help us begin to answer this question, I think we would do well to consider and to study two letters written by Paul to Timothy. We called them First and Second Timothy. We are told in the book of Acts that Paul met Timothy probably on his first missionary journey through Galatia. But Timothy is actually not mentioned until Paul's second missionary journey when he passed through Galatia again. This is found in Acts 16. We are told that he lived in the town of Lystra. And that upon the recommendation of uh, the believers there, Paul decided to take Timothy along with him on his travels. We are told that Timothy's mother was Jewish, but that his father was Greek. Paul decided, because his mother was in fact Jewish, to have Timothy circumcised so that there would be no problem as he preached among the Jews of the diaspora. And thus began what we might consider a father-son relationship. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For this reason I am sending to you you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. I'm really struck by the phrase, my son whom I love, because we hear this in the Gospels. We hear this when God the Father speaks of Jesus of Nazareth. We also hear it of Abraham when he is told to sacrifice Isaac, your son, whom you love. So there is a strong sense of intimacy here. We hear similar language in 1st and 2nd Timothy. We will read today in verse number 2 to Timothy, my true son in the faith. In verse number 18, which the Lord willing we'll see next week, Timothy, my son. And then in 2nd Timothy, to Timothy, my dear son. And so there was a father-son type of relationship. But there was more than that. He was a fellow worker, we read in Romans 16. He had, in fact, been given three previous assignments where Paul sends him to churches to take care of matters there. um, In Thessalonica, in Corinth, and then in Philippi. And now, as this letter is written, we find Timothy in the church in Ephesus. It is also worth noting (coughs) that in six of the letters that Paul wrote, we call them Pauline epistles. Uh, Timothy is listed as a co-author, something that I think oftentimes we tend to neglect. We think, well, Paul wrote them and that's it. But in fact, Timothy was right there with him and he is mentioned by name. I mention these things to help flesh out our portrait of Timothy, which is often somewhat distorted. Because of what Paul writes in these letters, we tend to think That Timothy was someone who was very young, probably in his early to mid-twenties. He was probably in his early to mid-thirties at the time this letter is written. That he was sickly. That he was quite fearful. And that he lacked any personal charisma or personal forcefulness. Um, And I think all of these are are off uh, a bit. As I said, he was probably over 30 at the time of this letter. But what about him being fearful and lacking in personal forcefulness? You may remember in our series on fear that the most repeated command in scripture is do not fear or do not be afraid. And so that if Paul says this to Timothy, we shouldn't say, oh, well, apparently Timothy has an issue with fear. And that's why Paul writes this. I remember um, when we went through Joshua, this has been decades ago. Um, that I was struck by how many times Joshua, who was the military commander of Israel under Moses, and now assumes the position Moses had, how many times he is told not to be afraid. How How many times he is told to be of good courage. And I remember thinking, if I had been Joshua, at some point I would have said, if anybody else tells me not to be afraid or to be of good courage, we're going to have problems. Because we hear it over and over again. Was Joshua a fearful person? I don't think so. But this is, I think, in many ways, because of sin, our default position. And when things get tough, we become fearful. And so Joshua is told not to be afraid. And I think the same is true of what Paul writes to Timothy. The occasion of this letter is that Timothy has been left in Ephesus. And Paul writes him within that context. The purpose of this letter is found in verse number 3. If you look at chapter 1, verse number 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Um, So Timothy is in Ephesus to stand for the faith. And Paul writes him within that context. It's really unclear how the church in Ephesus began. We are told that when Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half, he's on his way back to Antioch, his home church, to give a report. And all things be the way they were, he had to pass through Ephesus. And when he was in Ephesus, he went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews, and they begged him to stay, and he said, no, no, if God wills, I will come back. But he left Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. So they may have actually been the founders Of the church there. And then he came back to Ephesus and spent three years, longer than any other place, uh, during his missionary uh, work. Ephesus was the provincial capital of Galatia. It was the religious center of that province. Commercially, it was in decline during the time of Paul because the harbor was filling up with silt, and so it was not a viable harbor much longer, but it became pretty much a tourist center. People went there because of the goddess Artemis or Diana, as we know her. As best we can tell, when we speak of the church in Ephesus, what we are actually talking about is a significant number of house churches, not one mega church or large congregation, but a number of house churches. And there are false teachers who are doing great damage to the cause of the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy In that context, from this letter and the one that follows, I'm convinced we can learn the principles of how we are to pass on the gospel to the next generation. If you will look at the first two verses, we find the greeting from Paul to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you knew nothing about the relationship between Paul and Timothy and then you know what they were what they meant to one another, beyond the words my true son in the faith, which can be read as somewhat impersonal, um, this the opening of this letter does not seem to indicate any closeness at all. Beginning with how Paul refers to himself. By just to remind you, we've seen in looking at other epistles that in the ancient world when people wrote a letter, <coughs> first you write this is who's writing the letter. Secondly, this is who I'm writing it to. Then there's a form of a greeting. And then fourthly, there is a thanksgiving assort. I thank God for you. I thank the gods that you're in good health. This was the style that we found there. So who is writing the letter? It is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. This is somewhat terse, certainly compared to other letters that we have written by Paul why isn't Paul more effusive? Why isn't there, uh, I don't know, more feeling? Why isn't, this seems just very cut and dried, black and white. I'm Paul, in a, I mean, it would be as though my father were to write me a letter. My father who since passed would say, uh, this is Damon Woods, your pastor, uh, writing to you, my son, Damon, grace, mercy, and peace to you. What's going on here? Well, I will argue throughout this series that Timothy is not the only person reading this letter. There are other people reading this letter and Paul knows that. And so some of the personal aspects of letter writing that we might expect are not found in this letter because even though it is addressed to Timothy, it is intended for a much larger audience as people like, what did Paul have to say in the letter? And the letter would be given to them so that they could read it. This is not a letter for Timothy alone. So Paul begins by pointing to his credentials. I mean, Timothy knows he's an apostle. Timothy probably knows better than anybody else that he is a legitimate apostle. But the false teachers in Ephesus are questioning that. And so Paul begins with who he is. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. In the letters in which Paul's authority is called into question, he refers to himself as an apostle. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. And other letters say to the Philippians, people he was very close to, he refers to himself as a servant. So the fact that Paul refers to himself as an apostle, I think, gives us a hint, Um, okay, there's an issue of authority here, that people are questioning whether or not Paul is legitimately an apostle. So he begins by saying, I am an apostle by the command of God. Not his own choice. He was commanded by God to be an apostle. This is also strange, because in other letters, like in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he is an apostle by the will of God. That this was God's will. God wanted me to be an apostle. That's why I am one. Uh, here it's different. God commanded that I, in fact, should be an apostle. In this letter, Paul will give commands. He will tell Timothy to give commands. And we should recognize, as Paul certainly does, that only a person under authority has legitimate authority. A person who is not under authority does not have authority. And because Paul has been commanded by God, he then, in turn, can command Timothy who in turn can command the false teachers to stop what they are doing. Why God our Savior? Again, I would expect Jesus our Savior, or Christ Jesus our Savior. Why God? In Paul's writings, usually God refers to God the Father. Well, this is Old Testament language. And the Old Testament is an issue with the false teachers. And so I think it is... Yeah, Paul knows what he's doing. He's using Old Testament language. Excuse me. Psalm 24 opens with the familiar, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Then the question is asked, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hearts and a, clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. In the next psalm, Psalm 25, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And there we see Savior and hope, as we see in verse number 1, here in First Timothy 1. Psalm 42, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So while the opening may seem somewhat terse, maybe lacking some sense of affection or intimacy, it is loaded with the authority that Paul has been given by God our Savior and Christ our hope. The person addressed is Timothy. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. In the second letter, which in fact does seem much more personal, he will refer to Timothy as my dear son. But remember, other people are reading this letter. Paul seeks to reinforce the fact that, number one, he is a true apostle by the command of God, and Timothy is his true representative and his true son. Um, the language that is used is that of a legitimate son. He's not illegitimate. He is a legitimate son. And so what he has to say, it is as though Paul himself were speaking. He is a son because of his faith. He has been with Paul, and therefore his words have authority. then the greeting here in verse number two. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a bit unusual because usually in Paul's greetings we see grace and peace. But Paul adds mercy here. We've seen this before that a typical greeting in Greek in those days was karen, which means greetings. Paul changes this to karis, which means grace. Then he speaks of mercy here refers to the grace of God. But more than that, it is the needy condition of the recipient. Um, I, I find it strange that grace is used in today's world, um, not in the sense intended in Scripture, but as, as something one can gain, one, something one can earn. That whatever grace I have earned, you know, may it go to someone else. Mercy's not that way. Um, we still haven't corrupted mercy to that point. If you have mercy, it is because you are in need. You are in a desperate situation, and therefore mercy must be given to you. So grace, let's understand this is unmerited, but somehow we may, in our own twisted way, think that we've earned it. Mercy, okay, we are in need. And what is the answer? Peace. We have first the cause and then we have the effect. The traditional greeting among the Hebrews, among the Jews, was shalom, peace. It speaks of wholeness, well-being, the outcome of God's redemptive work. It speaks of a new world transformed from the fallen state and now it is into the way that God intended. It isn't finished yet. There is the past aspect of God's work, the present aspect of his work and the future, but we use the word peace to describe what is going on. In a single word, Paul describes God's plan for the restoration of all things. Now, at this point in the letter, any decent, self-respecting letter writer would say something about, I thank the gods. Paul would say, I thank God for you. Um, And we have none of that. Verse number three, Paul jumps right into it. As one author put it, Paul begins the letter proper in a way that is uncharacteristic of him without the standard thanksgiving. Instead, Paul launches immediately into the occasion and purpose of the letter. Listen as I read beginning in verse number three. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, The unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound, to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Who are these false teachers? We are not told directly, but we can infer from what is found in these letters and elsewhere. Unlike what we find in Corinth or in Galatia and other places, these false teachers have not come into the church from outside. They are not from Jerusalem, in Galatia, for example, but I think also in Corinth. They're not outsiders. These false teachers are, in fact, elders in these house churches. They are members of the church in Ephesus. How do we come to this conclusion? Well, I think we should begin in Acts 20, the last time that Paul met with the elders at Ephesus. He was going back and he was going to be arrested and ultimately sent to Rome. He said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul had already seen this, that after he left, he'd been there three years, but after three years of teaching them, when he left in these various house churches scattered throughout Ephesus, there would be elders who would arise and begin to teach strange and new doctrines and basically seek to make the work about them, that the church would revolve around them, their personality and who they were. The elders were teachers, and Paul describes them as such. I find it interesting that in these letters, Paul spends quite a bit of time on the character of an elder, the qualifications of an elder, and how you are to discipline church leaders, how you're to discipline elders. So I mentioned earlier, the church in Ephesus was not one congregation, but many congregations. And in various congregations, these false teachers had arisen. What is the nature of their false teaching? In the opening section, we're, we're given some information, and rather than dealing with the details of it right now, um, I think what I want to point out that there are two components to their false teaching, if you wish. First of all, their behavior. That is, that their behavior in many ways was unchristian. And then secondly, their theology, the cognitive dimension of their teaching, was also not Christian. So it wasn't just what they said, it was what they did. And it wasn't just what they did, it was also what they said. That we see both dimensions of of them expressing something that is not true to Scripture. And yet, what they said and what they did are secondary to something that is basic and primary, and that's money. That they are driven by greed. they believe that godliness is a means, and godliness we put in quotation marks, that godliness is a means to great gain. And Paul writes most explicitly about that uh, in chapter 6. Um, so these men had in fact become elders in house churches, and there would in fact be a collection for those in need, but somehow the money was making it their, its way to them. And they began to draw more disciples by teaching strange and bizarre things. And Paul tells Timothy, you need to command these men to stop. What was the content of their false teaching? That is the theology of it. Um, It involves a number of things. First of all, they misused the Old Testament, the genealogies, the myths and genealogies. Um, But secondly, they blended in elements from the culture, the surrounding culture. So we will see in 2 Timothy 2, they denied the resurrection. They said the resurrection had already happened. We see yes. this among the Corinthians as well. Greeks just could not handle the concept of resurrection. It's a very Jewish idea. Uh, for the Greeks, the Europeans, it just seemed bizarre. And we see that that has come in with the false teaching as well. So a bit of scripture, Old Testament, a bit of the culture, you mix it together, driven by greed and your own personality, and you end up with the false teachers of Ephesus. Briefly from our passage today, we see that they focus on myths and endless genealogies. They seem to delight in controversies rather than God's work. I think there's much that could be said about that. And they promoted themselves as teachers of the law. In reality, they did not know the law. They didn't know what they were talking about. But if the people you're talking to know even less than you do, you may come across as brilliant as though you know what you're talking about. So you might be wondering at this point, what does this have to do with the question, how are we to pass on the gospel to the next generation? I think it actually provides a natural and a helpful starting point. I hope that in the series to give a series of principles, uh, things that we should follow in passing the gospel on. I think the place to begin is precisely where Paul begins this letter. If we want to pass the gospel on to the next generation, it would be helpful, no, it would be necessary that we point out that the church may have false believers. And this may be seen in what they do and what they believe. See, I think in the church, if we're not careful, for most people, we think of us versus them. We're the church the people outside are not. If you wish, we're the good guys with the white hats, they're the bad guys with the black hats, we're good, they're bad. And so there's this dichotomy, us versus them. Um, But then at a certain point, particularly in your teenage years or maybe in your early 20s, a crisis of sorts may emerge when you begin to realize that not everybody out there is bad. And then you find out that not everybody in the church is good. I can't help but wonder myself how many Christians could have avoided a crisis of faith if they had been told that the danger facing the church is not merely outside the church, but within the church as well. Now, if we tell our children, the next generation, child, you need to know that in the church, um, Not everybody does the right thing. Not everybody believes the right thing. You say, well, won't that shake the confidence of my child? Won't they become suspicious and paranoid about people in the church looking around thinking that they can't trust anyone? Not necessarily. As we pass our faith on to the next generation, we need to understand, and we want them to understand, that the church is not made up of perfect people. It is made up of imperfect people. Many, I think, never got that message, that memo. Somehow, we were raised in the church thinking that everybody that goes to church, the people we see every Sunday, these are good people. They never do anything wrong. They would never believe anything that is wrong. And then when somebody does, in fact, do something wrong or believe something that is wrong and leave the church and join a cult, our faith is shaken and we're like, what happened there? the beginning point of passing the gospel on is to say we are imperfect people and the congregation is made up of imperfect people who are very capable of behaving badly and of believing wrongly. In fact, what we need to do is to say, child, I am capable of behaving badly. I am capable of believing wrongly. This is not a to be a cause for fear this is something that should say that's why I'm part of a congregation that's why we're part of a church because we're not by ourselves we're not free agents lone rangers out there by ourselves we in fact need one another to keep us in check so that if in fact we begin to behave wrongly someone can say "Um, that actually is not a very Christian way to behave it goes contrary to scripture and if we begin to believe something that is wrong, then someone can say, um, I've studied the scripture as well, we have, and we're convinced that what you believe in fact is wrong and we'd like you to re-examine what it is that you hold to be true. I can't tell you, and I'm sure you all have stories of people you know who left the church for a time or perhaps left the church and never came back because of a crisis of faith when they came to see that there were people in their congregation that were less than saintly. People who did things they should not do. People who believed things that were wrong. And particularly among teenagers and young adults, this can be devastating. If we are to pass the gospel on to the next generation, we must begin with the fact of the reality that we are all sinners and we are imperfect. We do not always behave as we should. We do not always believe what we should. But God is gracious and he can sustain us. In some ways, this is not merely a question of how do we pass the gospel on to the next generation. It is how do we, as this generation, sustain our faith in God. I almost read with a certain envy uh, our prayer of confession of praising God's greatness from generation to generation. I think I'd be happy to praise God's greatness from week to week. I mean, you forget generation to generation. How do we, as God's people, sustain our faith as God's people? Let's begin where we should. That we are imperfect people capable of behaving badly and believing wrongly. But we need one another. We need to stick together as God's people. Correct each other when we need to. Discipline each other when we need to. Encourage one another when needed. And as God's people, be the body of Christ in this place. I hope in the weeks to come that we continue to consider this issue of how do we pass the gospel on to the next generation let's pray together our father we thank you that you love us and yet many times we are startled by that reality And if it isn't your love for us, particularly your love for other Christians, perhaps who have not acted in what we would say is a Christian way, who seem driven by self-interest, who seem to imagine themselves at the center of the universe, who lack Christian humility, whose speech perhaps is less than what we might desire. We could go on and on as we look at others and we wonder how could you love such people? The reality is you do love them and you love us as imperfect and as as sinful as we are. How gracious you are. And if we are to sustain our faith in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ And if we are to pass it on to the next generation, we need to begin by recognizing who we are. Sinners capable of behaving quite badly. And sometimes not even knowing that we're doing so. But in honesty, uh, probably do know that we're doing wrong. People are capable of believing wrong things, being led astray. That's why you've called us here together as a congregation that we can stand side by side shoulder to shoulder encourage one another correct one another that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ might go from this generation to the next. I thank you for your faithfulness over the past 38 years that Dan Lonnie and I have been together People have come and gone and you remain faithful, profoundly humbled by your faithfulness and how you've taken care of us. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. And even as we meet in a few moments to discuss business of the church, may you be in our midst. May you guide our conversations, our our give and take. May what we do bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?